afternoon, all of you. Good to see cheery, smiling faces back in the hall on Sabbath. I haven't had anything to scream about myself and my Bible the last couple, three weeks, so nice to have you back. Such a beautiful day here. I went out and actually sat in the backyard for quite a while this morning in the sunshine. It's just, just beautiful. I'm thankful for the Sabbath. Every seven days it comes, and we certainly need it. The basic message today is one that is going to be pretty uplifting, actually, and pretty hopeful. I did have a few comments, however, sort of from the other side uh, before getting into it. Uh, a guy that does embalmings says that now 50% of the people he embalms have a rubbery substance in their veins kind of granules, rubber-like. And uh, I've no doubt, 50%, and this is something that's new, uh, this is probably from the vaccinations that's causing the blood to go into that kind of form. And of course, you're dead when that happens. So this thing is increasing and getting worse. Uh, They've gone completely Bolshevik now in Canada. Uh, Trudeau has declared himself uh, the dictator. By declaring martial law, uh, anything he says, anything he tells the military to do, they have to do. So they bypassed law and order, and under martial law, you simply do what the authority in charge says. And you have that peaceful trucker strike going on, And yesterday and today, uh, the police have been beating people and trampling them into the ground, hit an elderly lady who was crippled in the head with the butt of a rifle. And this is the kind of thing that's going on uh, in Canada today. And it's going to get worse. Meanwhile, out in British Columbia, there was an eco-terrorist group of 20 who came into a pipeline where workers were working and threatened them with axes and beat holes in the pipeline and did millions and millions of dollars worth of damage and nothing is being even investigated. Uh, So they're part of the Mother Gaia movement and the governments are all for that and that's okay. You can beat people up, punch holes in pipelines, and go away scot-free to do it again. But uh, if you go to the Capitol and peacefully ask them not to be communists, they will not allow it. Someone called this the Tiananmen Square Day of Canada, uh, when they open up like that on the populace. Meanwhile here, you ever been in the grocery store and seen meat with a mark on it that said manager special and you'd look at it because you figured the price was lower since this is a special from the manager. Well, in North Carolina yesterday, a lady saw a manager special on a piece of meat, so she picked it up and looked at it and the original price had been 12.80 or thereabouts 
and the manager's special tag said fourteen eighty. They'd marked it up not almost two dollars they'd marked it up as a manager's special. Uh, there's a sign of galloping, raging inflation beginning to occur. And that's the way it is. Stuff goes up in price the same day, over and over and over, once it really gets loose like it did in Germany prior to World War II. And that's exactly where we're headed. So, what the grocery store manager told that lady was, it's okay, don't worry about it, we're very quickly headed for rice and beans again. Uh, his take is that food supply is going to continue to shrink and there won't be much to buy. So we're in it, brethren. Uh, like it or not, we're in it. And it's getting worse day by day. Uh, I read one report that it's not the commercial banks now that are only in trouble. That's what happened back in 08 when Lehman's went under and some other uh, commercial banks get overextended. And you do know now that since 2020, your bank, the one where you have your account, does not have to hold any money there. They used to be required to hold 10% of the deposits to take care of depositors. But since they declared in 2020 that the money is not yours anyway, when you deposit it there, it is their money. And because they like doing business with you, they will still give it back to you if you ask for it. Unless you ask for too much at once. But when the crunch comes and the banks start closing and people start the run on the money, uh, they're simply going to say, we can't give you any money. Technically, by law now, it is their money, not yours. So they can withhold it at any time they get good and ready to. And that $100,000 FDIC guarantee on your account means absolutely nothing. They don't have one half of 1% of what it would take to give everybody $100,000 who had it in the bank to start with. It's just not there. They don't have it. So... We are very, very close to war with Russia right now. Uh, we expect the Northern Army, as the scriptures all say, to invade us at some point, And we are certainly pushing for them to do it. Let's understand for a moment what this is about. Uh, it's all about, basically, the petrodollar, the American dollar, which heretofore... You could only settle international debts with the U.S. dollar. And people have tried to break that cycle. And it is that grip that the dollar has had on the world that has allowed us to pronounce sanctions on different nations, to cut off uh, their money supply. It's been that power backed by our military that has allowed that. And now they're trying to break free of it. Saddam Hussein tried to do it. Uh, he announced that he was going to start selling oil for gold. And it wasn't very long until he got bombed and killed. In Libya, Gaddafi was beloved of his people. He was expanding, giving every young couple a new house when they got married. He had worked out a deal with the African nations, most of them, 
to have their own currency and to settle debts between themselves and gold. And it wasn't long until the U.S. decided that he was a bad guy and bombed him, or bombed Libya, and killed him. They also bombed uh, the pipelines of oil, and they bombed the factory where pipes were made to restore it. So it was very clearly uh, that threat against the petrodollar that caused their demise. Now Russia and China have agreed to do the same thing, and we are pushing at Russia very hard in the Ukraine. And they don't want our missiles five to seven minutes away from Moscow, uh, nor do they want us interfering with their deals they've made to bypass the dollar. Meantime, we're printing trillions and trillions of them. They're coming worth less and less. Our inflation now is much higher than Mexico's. Mexico has suffered with high inflation for years and years and have to keep revaluing the peso and doing all kinds of things to keep themselves afloat. And now we're in the same position, only worse. And as I started to say, the commercial banks now aren't the only problem. It's the central banks that are now in trouble. They also have got involved in the monopoly game and acquiring assets and acquiring paper that is quickly becoming worthless. And as the stock market crashes, which it soon will, um, they will have no value. They're already basically bankrupt and just printing money and passing it out. Now the government says they're going to stop doing that and that they're going to raise the interest rate and trouble is ahead. So we know that God has said there in Zephaniah 2, among other places, that there's coming a great financial crash. And it tells God's people to get out of the system and go out into the wilderness away from this world's systems and society before the decree of destruction hits. That's in Zephaniah 2, right after saying it in chapter 1. So God will gather his people a little ahead of the financial crash. He also tells them that they'll be fleeing ahead of the northern army, just ahead of it, there in Jeremiah 50. So expect a crash fairly soon. Expect an attack from Russia and China and all those allied with them fairly soon. And expect God's people to just barely escape ahead of it all. That seems to be the way the scriptures are laid out very clearly. So, I'm not trying to set a date on this by saying this, but the way things are looking in the world, and <laughs> manager special being $2 a pound higher, uh, makes you wonder how quickly this thing is coming together and how fast things are going to deteriorate in our nation. So with that happy thought, Let's go back to Zechariah and see some happier thoughts. Now remember from last week in chapter 7, the fourth year of Darius, 
he gave a message about the 70 years that we should have really been doing the fast of the months, and most of the church didn't, but God does say it here, and when we recognized it, we started doing it, and how it was done primarily out of selfishness, that we wanted answers for ourselves and were not fasting toward God, as Isaiah 58 clearly shows we are to do, and that if we put Him first and take care of our neighbors and their needs, then we will be repairers of the breach because we're doing the right instead of the wrong thing. So he makes that very clear and tells us about basic Christianity in verse 9. He says, Execute true judgment and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. Now when he says this, this isn't ancient history. He's talking to you and me. He's talking about conditions as the 70 years have just ended, as he said in Zechariah 1, they were. And that he would bless us again and spoke comfortable words there in Zechariah 1, beginning of this context, if you will. So he tells us here what we are to be doing, you and me. This isn't written to anybody but the church. Now, ultimately, it's written toward Israel as a nation, because they need to do this too, and they're not. And they're about to be destroyed for it. The church has already been destroyed for it. So he's telling those who've survived, this is what you're supposed to do. True judgment, not false judgment, not things that you have ascribed to people, but true judgment with real facts, not just what you dreamed up. And show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. Now, we have some here in this congregation who are brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ included, of course. And he's telling you and me, we need to treat each other with proper judgment and with love and mercy and compassion. Not be critical of each other, but mercy and compassion and love is to be shown. This is what he's been after all along. Love him, love your neighbor. It's what it's all about. It's what it's always all been about. Was in the beginning of man, was during Moses' day, was during the apostles' day, and still is today, and will be in the world tomorrow. And this is the lesson right here that God wants us all to learn. Simply love each other. Oppress not the widow and the fatherless, the stranger nor the poor. Have love and kind regards and help wherever you can with all kinds of people. And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. And that is a very, very difficult one for people to swallow because it is a carnal human characteristic to think the worst of people, to imagine what they are doing. You see them walking around, you see them going through life, and you imagine that they're doing things that they may not be doing at all. It's just your fertile, bad imagination. Don't we all do that? Don't we think about somebody and, oh, 
That's the way it is with him or her. That's what they're doing. That's what they're thinking. Because we like to put people in a pigeonhole. We like to categorize them. We like to assess them. And human nature will assess them in a negative way most of the time. That's the carnal human mind that does that. Now, you may think it's God giving you insight into their character, and it is likely not. If you're thinking evil or bad or negative thoughts about them, that didn't come from God. He does not think that way. He is love and mercy and compassion all the way through. So if you think evil of people and let your mind turn on what they must be doing bad, then you are of Satan the devil and you are of your own carnal human flesh. That stuff doesn't come from God. That comes in Galatians under works of the flesh, not the Spirit of God. So be aware when you let your mind idle off onto somebody that you are going contrary to God. And that's what people have always done. And that's why he's telling us here, don't do that. That's not my way. And that is part of why he broke the church apart. But what did they do? They refused to listen, pulled away the shoulder, and said, don't tell me what to think, don't tell me what to do. Well, God is God, and this, I'm not telling you this. I'm reading that straight out of his word. This is what he's telling us right now. They don't want to hear about his law, which is love toward God and love toward man. That summarizes his law, first in the great commandment. And then he says he scattered us, down in verse 14. So, there's an indictment and there is uh, guidance toward how we are to be thinking and how we need to change our thoughts to mercy and love and compassion instead of evil imagination. Now, in verse 8, he says what will happen, goes on here, same context that we began the first chapter of Zechariah in. The end-time church, what has happened to it, what is about to happen to it, and that is the theme that has continued up until here and continues in chapter 8 and on. Uh, we need to understand that the context is for now, and it's for those who are repenting out of Laodiceanism right now. So it's for us. So again, the word of the Eternal of hosts came to me. He continues to speak to him, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. Now, we just read about mercy and compassion and love, and those are the things that God are, or is. And now, he says he was jealous of his church, Zion, with great jealousy and with great fury. Now, how do you put this together? says there in Revelation 3, he was furious with us, angry with us, so much so that he spewed us out of his mouth. Now, I don't know how you hurl or throw up or vomit uh, with some people. I guess it's a gentle thing where they just kind of erp and it's done, but 
With me, it's always a violent thing. My stomach gets so upset, so nauseated, so hurtful, that I throw up with a huge, powerful surge. And sometimes I yell as it happens. I mean, it just comes out with, with cute noise and everything. With me, it's pretty violent. I haven't done it a whole lot in my life, thankfully, but when I do, I try to put my whole heart into it. To get rid of that, which is so repugnant down there, and rotted or whatever. And that's what Christ had in his stomach about the church. So he was jealous of our connection to the world. He was jealous for our fornication and adultery with Satan and his government and his way of life. With his music, with his sports, with his war, with his breaking of every law of God. He's sick of it. And sick of us going along thinking that we're okay because we're in the church. And we had deceived ourselves. So he was jealous with a great jealousy. Now that's the way he was with ancient Israel, remember? They went out and made deals with other nations for protection. Had allies for defense. When God had told them, if you obey me, I will protect you. And you won't have to worry about making allies with the world. But they did it anyway. And to him, that was spiritual adultery with consorting with those that they should not have been. So he divorced Israel and took her into captivity because he was very jealous of his mate. Now, she didn't perform properly and cheated on him regularly. And he got fed up with that pretty quick. He had great jealousy there. So he put her away, and then he offered marriage in the New Covenant to people from the time Christ walked the earth. Offered us a marriage covenant. And when he sees us consorting with the world and being part of the world, and not putting our whole heart and mind into serving him, he gets very jealous again. Because he intends to marry the 144,000 that have been faithful out of the church. And out of all these, those he called in worldwide, 100% of us were not in the right spiritual attitude. And only 10% of us are going to repent and come to the right attitude. And those he intends to marry. So he was jealous for us with a great fury and blew us up. That's what he's talking about here. Then he says, Thus says the Lord, I am returned to Zion, and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. So there's a transformation that is about to begin, where he was jealous with a great jealousy, and then he is going to be jealous, not against us, but for us. Let's go back to Zechariah 1 and look at that again. 
talks about this 70 years, and the earth is basically at peace, but the war horses are walking here. And I said, how long until you have mercy on Jerusalem, up here in verse 12, and on the cities of Judah, against which you have had indignation or fury these 70 years? And I think that we've determined now that that, that period of time was 1947 to 2017. Seems to fit perfectly. And that soon after that, this would turn around. So he answered with good and comfortable words. And he said, I am jealous, in the verse 14, for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy, and am sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease. So he had fury on us because of our unfaithfulness. Now, since we are repenting, he is going to turn and be jealous for us, and take care of our enemies for us, as a loving husband would do. And that's all he's saying, or what he's saying, not all, because it's very important, in chapter 8. I mean, don't we see that in human life? One of the other of the mates starts cheating on the other, and... Doesn't the other mate, when they find out, get very, very angry, furious, and threaten all kinds of things? Death and dismemberment, divorce, you name it, all kinds of things come up if they think that's happening or know it's happening. Hopefully, the sin stops and they patch things up and they can live in love and respect again with each other. But that is a very, very hard thing to once trust has been violated. Very, very difficult for people to overcome that and continue with a good marriage because it's been violated. Now, Christ looked at the same thing with us and said, we're engaged, people, and you're still running off after the world. Come to me, and I will make you whole. He said there at the end of chapter 3 in Revelation, I knock on the door, open, and I will come in, and I will sup with you. Have the wedding ceremony and the wedding supper with us. He tells us in Jeremiah, I think it's 31, to seek me, find me, and I will be found of you. It says the same words almost, I think it's in Deuteronomy. But he's there, he's willing. If he knocks, if we'll open and let him into our lives, then he will come in and he will take care of us. So that's what he's saying here. I was angry at you. I blew you apart. Now that you are repenting, I'm ready to show jealousy for you and against those who would harm you. That's the way the relationship ought to be is that he can look at us and say, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to make the world leave you alone. Let you and I have a special relationship. That's what he's after. Isn't that, isn't that what he told us in the very beginning when he started Israel? I want you to be a particular nation, one that I set apart as all my own. I won't give the other nations the care, the love, the opportunities that I'm going to give you as an example to the rest of the world. 
So he offered us a very special place in his heart, his mind, and we spurned him and went the wrong way. How long did it take to set up a false idol when Moses went up to receive the commandments that the covenant was based on? There they were with a golden idol, naked and dancing in the streets. It upset Moses and it upset God. And it's been that way throughout Israel's history ever since. Didn't, didn't it hurt him? I think it hurt him very deeply there in Ezekiel 16, where he said, Your father is an Amorite, and your mother is a Hittite, or whatever he called them. He says, You look like Gentiles to me. Now, were those really their father and mother? No, it was Abraham and Sarah. But he said, You don't look like Abraham and Sarah. You look like the Gentiles around you. You're no different. Are we different than the people around us? We better be. Hopefully we can be. Not live like them, think like them, or act like them. So he says, I was jealous and I was furious. But I am returned to the church and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Remember all those scriptures we've read where he said he turned his face away from us, but he'll turn it back and smile on us. And he, Zechariah, I think it was two, he said we would be the apple of his eye. Now that's what he intended Israel to be from the very beginning. And we were generally the rotten, nasty one. And he'd put us in captivity and would repent and come out. And then we'd go right back to our old ways. So he said, this time I'm going to spew you out. And I don't want you to go back to your old ways. I want you to turn to me. And somewhere out there, right now, today, brethren, there are about 10% of what was worldwide who are doing just that. They are seeking him. They're trying to find him. They're trying to please him. I don't know who they are, but he does. And he's the one who says he will stir them to come and build in the temple in Jerusalem and restore that which has been torn apart. Ten percent. He knows every one of them and counts the hair on their head. So I don't know how they're going to get here, exactly when they're going to get here, but when he tells me in here, ten percent are coming, Isaiah, into Isaiah 6, it says ten percent. Malachi talks about his tithe, his 10%. God will have his 10% of people. Money is only a symbol of people. We owe God for everything he's done for us. He doesn't owe us a thing. He gave us life and everything since. And we owe him everything. What do I owe the world? What do I owe Satan? Nothing. They've done nothing but harm me and my family. I owe God everything. So my total allegiance needs to go there. He's giving us total allegiance. The apple of his eye, he says, we're going to be again very shortly. Now he repeats what was said in Haggai. Thus, verse 4, thus says the Eternal of hosts, 
Therefore shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age will be old. And in Haggai he said that there would be people who were in the former temple, Worldwide Church of God, who will also be latter temple, old men, says. What happens within the lifetime of people who could see both? And here he includes the girls. There it just said old men. Now it says old women too. So there'll be some old men and some old women left, but advanced in age. But on top of that, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. This isn't talking about the millennium and the world tomorrow. This is talking about him reviving the church and coming and dwelling among us, as he says he'll do there in Zechariah 1 and 2, ahead of the millennium. We've got a few little kids right here who will be playing in the streets of Jerusalem pretty soon, and there'll be more coming. Now, I take it from Haggai in this, that it's going to be mostly old people who have seen worldwide at its best and will see the latter temple at its best. But that doesn't mean some of our children, our grandchildren, other young people that we don't know of, will be here. And those kids will be playing in the streets of Jerusalem. In some ways, it's already here. We are part of Jerusalem, part of Zion those who have already come out. So the church is Zion and Jerusalem as well as the physical part. And our kids run around here already in the streets of Jerusalem. But it's going to get much more pronounced with more blessings. Let's read on. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, if it be difficult, says marvelous here, but Means it says hard or difficult in the Hebrew. If it be hard or difficult in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be <coughs> hard or difficult in my eyes, says the eternal of hosts. What he's saying is we are here living, and these things seem to be hard or difficult to happen. They seem to be delayed. They seem to be hard to bring about. How can God do this? Or as Habakkuk said, how long, O Lord? I know it's got to happen, but how long is it going to take? And had frustrations about it. And God is saying the same thing here. It seems hard and difficult to us, and yet it's kind of hard and difficult for Him too. Now, how could that be? He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise. But there is a problem, and that is of people coming out of worldwide, having been spewed, who somehow get the vision, who somehow get the understanding to know what God is going to do if we repent as per Revelation 3. So he sits back, having turned his head from us, And it's hard or difficult for him to look on us, 
But there's going to come a time when he's going to turn his head back and smile on us and bless us and call this the apple of his eye and Christ himself is going to come and dwell with us while these end time events occur under the two witnesses and the remnant that are coming. But through his grace and his mercy and his true judgment, he's going to see people changing their hearts and their conduct and their thoughts. And though it's difficult for him, at some point, he's going to show gracious grace and mercy and forgiveness and cleanse our sins out. And he says in Zechariah 3, down toward the end, that we'll be cleansed in one day. He's going to wipe away the sin. It is sin that separates us from God, right? So, he has to forgive our sins and put them away, washed away in the blood of Christ himself, so that he can look upon us with love and favor. Because our sins, in the meantime, are repugnant to him. And we continue to sin to one degree or another. I know we're working on it. We're fighting it. We may not be sinning as much as we were ten years or five years or two years ago. We maybe have made progress and are overcoming some, and I think so. But that doesn't mean that we're sinless today. So he has to wipe that out, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's at Passover time when it happens, this year or next, or whenever. Because that's the, most, the greatest symbolic time of forgiveness of sin there is in the Bible. And atonement along with it, when we're made at one, and all sin is forgiven forever, and we will not sin anymore after that one. Now, after Passover, and Christ being in it, we continue to sin and still do. So Passover is a, a, such an important key that forgiveness can't even be extended through him. But not until we are made at one and we are changed into spirit, represented by trumpets and atonement, is all sin abolished forever because we'll never sin again after that. So it's even more important. That opens the door for us to live in absolute peace, tranquility and love of God and each other forevermore. So right now, we're working at it, and he's working at it. But we have to trust and have enough faith in him that if we do our part, he will come through and he'll do what he's telling us right here. So there'll be kids playing in the streets. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, if it be difficult, in his eyes and ours, uh, it's okay. Verse 7, thus says the Eternal of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country, from the west country. And he says in Isaiah, from the north, south, east, and west, they'll come from every direction. And I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people. And I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. That's the way it has to be. For Christ to dwell among us, there has to be truth and there has to be righteousness. Isaiah 54 tells us that he will give us his righteousness, his holiness. Now ours, the best we can be, is filthy rags. 
the best we can be is deceitful and desperately wicked as human beings. But with His Spirit, we can rise above that. So even in this life, He says He will give us holiness and righteousness. There in Isaiah 54, and Isaiah 54 talks about when we're gathered. Lengthen the cords of your tents. People are coming. Uh, and they will have my righteousness, he says. Then he can get over the hard, difficult part and come dwell with us in love and peace. So it will be in truth and in righteousness. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you that hear in these days. Which days? These end time days that we're talking about here when the two witnesses will show up and the remnant will show up. That's which days he's talking about. And he tells us there at the end of Zephaniah to be strong and not to fear. Several places. Be of good courage and faith. So we are to be strong. That's when he's talking about just before Haggai. Through Haggai, he says some of the same things. And now he's saying it here in Zechariah, speaking of the very same time period. This isn't the millennium. You that hear in these days, these words by the mouth of the prophets, which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the eternal of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. Now what did he tell Zerubbabel there in Zechariah 4? You have laid the foundation, you will finish the building. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the eternal. So, this is Zerubbabel, which he says, who he says will be the banner or the signet or the flag at the end time in the last verse of Haggai, is the same one that he's talking about here, who laid the foundation of the temple. Now, a physical temple foundation hasn't been laid yet. But this Zerubbabel, wherever he may be today, and he is very alive and has been being trained for a long time, is the one who laid the foundation spiritually that this is talking about. Now, Herbert Armstrong laid the foundation of worldwide, did he not? Through God's direction. And that building got torn down. Now, he says in Zechariah 4, that Zerubbabel, the leader of the two witnesses, has laid the foundation and he will finish the temple. Now, if we don't already know who that is and where he is, we will soon. I think I know, and I think I know him well. And that's all I'll say at this point, but I do believe God has shown where he is. And I believe he'll show up before too long and take charge. I'm sure hoping so. Because that means that the remnant is going to come and God is going to do all these things he's telling us about. So he said, let your hands be strong. Don't be weak. Be ready to work. You that hear in these days by the mouth of the prophets, which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, the temple might be built. This is talking about the latter temple. And it's talking about the ministry who laid that foundation and who talked about it and performed it. That's who he's talking about here. This isn't talking about ancient prophets. For before these days, 
there was no hire for man, nor any hire for beast, neither was there any peace to him that went out or came in, because of the affliction. For I said, all men, everyone against his neighbor. Now, when he skewed us, did he not do that? And we had, from that time on, people pointing the finger at each other. Uh, I'm a Philadelphian, you're a Laodicean. I'm righteous, you're unrighteous. We've had these groups against each other and not working together, but trying to do their own thing and putting each other down. God did that. And that's what we have been going through. There's not been growth. It's been stagnant. No hire for man. <laughs> who, who needs it when there's nothing growing, when there's nothing building? And there wasn't any peace to him that went out or came in because of the affliction. Haven't we been in confusion and frustration and difficulty and trying to figure out what is this all about? What is God doing? What happened to the church? People have unanswered questions. And it says there in Isaiah, which we read recently, that none of them would know what's going on. No one would know. None of them would have any answers. They're like blind dogs. And it doesn't matter which group you go to, there's no answers there. They just keep trying to recreate worldwide, most of them. Let's get a broadcast and print booklets and nobody wants them. Nobody wants to listen. And it's stagnant. Nothing's happening. No hire for men. No fruit being produced. So God is describing here exactly what you and I have been going through. He said in only one place there in Isaiah would you find it. And Amos said it would be in the southwest. That's where he worked with Herbert Armstrong, was in the southwest. But this time it's not going to be in the city, it's going to be in the wilderness. That's very clear. So he said, everyone against his neighbor. But now I will not be to the residue of this people as in the former days, says the eternal of hosts. So he says, there's a change coming. I'm going to get rid of the stewing and vomiting and the hard and difficult time, and I'm going to bring in a peaceful, righteous time. And in Haggai it says, I will bring peace in this place, speaking of the latter temple. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit, and the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their dew, and I will be and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. Now, I'm going to go back to Haggai for a moment. And he said, chapter one, verse seventeen, cry yet, saying, Thus says the eternal of hosts. No, I'm in the Zechariah. No wonder that didn't sound right. I gotta go back to Zach to Haggai two. Um Verse 4, Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Eternal, and be strong, O Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Eternal, and work. Now that's what we just read in Zechariah 8 again. For I am with you, says the Eternal of hosts. And then he goes on down. 
verse 18. And he says, Consider from the time that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Whoever laid that, the, the, the latter temple, on a spiritual basis, wherever that was laid, he says, Consider, is the seed yet in the barn? As yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree has not brought forth, from this day will I bless you. So he says there comes a point where you're going to be looking. There's no hire for man. No fruit has been produced. Nothing is obvious anywhere where God has really set his hand to do something. Look all across the church around the world. Can you see any place where it's so obvious that God is working that everybody can see it? It isn't there. I don't care where you go. It isn't here either. It isn't anywhere because it hasn't happened yet. We're looking forward to it. We want it not to be hard and difficult and confusing anymore. We're looking for the time when God turns it around. So he says there'll be a time here that we've experienced when we look around and no fruit has been produced. None of these trees are bringing anything forth. Then we go back to chapter 8. Uh, see, where was I here? Let your hands be strong, verse 9. We just read that again in Haggai. But hear these and listen to the prophets who were there when the temple was laid. No hire for man nor beast. I set you against each other. Then in verse 12 is where I left off. For the seed shall be prosperous. He tells us there in Haggai, I will turn it around. The fruit will be produced. Here he's saying the exact same thing. The ground will give her increase. The heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. He's going to bless us as he's never blessed before. And it shall come to pass that as you were a curse among the heathen, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. So with God's blessing, he's going to turn it around, and he's going to bless a remnant. And they will be used as a light to the world. Christ told his people, be a light to the world from Zion. And that's going to happen. So, all this confusion and frustration we've been going through for decades now is shortly going to change, and fruit is going to be produced. And God's blessings are going to be returned. It says so, right here. And you were a curse among the heathen, O house of Judah and house of Israel. Now, this is spiritual Judah and spiritual Israel here. The church, because he deals with it first. Now, when the millennium comes, this will be repeated in physical Judah, and physical Israel will be examples to the rest of the world. But this is talking specifically here about the end time, the two witnesses of the remnant. It hasn't changed as we've gone through chapter after chapter. The subject has always been the same, the setting, the time frame. So this is still talking about right now. Why does it say, fear not, but let your hands be strong? 
If this were in the millennium, where would you and I be? We'd be the bride of Christ. We'd be ruling from the heavenly Jerusalem come to earth. And we would have no need to fear and no need to try to be strong in times when you tend to be weak. Because we would have everything by then. So this obviously has to be talking to a time before that happens. While we're still human and can fear and can be weak. Says, don't be that way. Be strong and don't fear. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, as I thought to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and he told us in Isaiah that our father, our leader, our pastor had sinned and come short. Herbert Armstrong had his difficulties. Now, I do believe God used him to do a mighty calling, but he still had his problems. And he wasn't the final Zerubbabel either. He was the minor type of it, I believe, but not the final one. He thought he was the final one. He told me that himself in person in 1981, that he was the man. And then I found out later he was not the man. He's dead and gone these decades. But I think he was a type. But the real is about to show. And did the ministry provoke God to wrath? Yes, we did. I recounted just one example last week about how the widows stayed in the shabbiest places at the feast and had barely enough to eat while the ministers had all the strong drink and steaks and fine motels that could be had. Was God angry with us? Yeah. Doesn't He tell us here, take care of the widow and the stranger and the orphan? If you weren't doing that, Change your mind. Change your attitude. Change your approach. Take care of those who have need. Don't diminish them or put them on the outside and be sure the ministers have everything they want. No. Everything was upside down and backward when it comes to things that matter to God. He's going to bless us. And as you were a curse, you shall become a blessing. And he says, as I, verse 14, as I thought to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath. Well, we did. I'm sorry. It says, all tables were filled with vomit when we get to the book of Malachi, and the ministry was not what we should have been. And all the ministry, including me, need to repent of all that and change it. So again, have I thought in these days to do well to Jerusalem... And to the house of Judah, fear you not. And that's what he tells us in Zechariah 1 when he starts this context. I'm thinking kindly of you. I wasn't happy with those who turned against me and led the church back into Protestantism and carnality and all the things that happened. I didn't like that. But I am going to answer you comfortably. Verse 16, he re repeats what he said in chapter 6. Uh, seven. These are the things that you shall do. Speak you every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. A little bit different, but almost the same words as we saw in chapter 7. 
And let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. Don't think badly of each other. Don't think negatively of each other. That is satanic, not godly. God is doing his level best to think highly of us. He loves us. He cares about us. He wants us in his kingdom. He says he will give us his kingdom. Uh, the words won't quite come to me. Uh, it is his good pleasure to give us his kingdom. That's it. He wants us. He loves us. He doesn't think evil of us. If we do evil, what is his reaction, brethren? If we actually do evil, what is God's reaction? He tells us in several places in Scripture that he wants that evil hidden. He wants it disallowed. He does not want it repeated. He wants it to go away. That doesn't mean he shoves it under the rug. He shoves it under the blood of our Savior. It's where he shoves it. And then we dig around at the blood at the base of the cross trying to condemn each other and find sin in each other. God hates sin. He wants sin out of his sight. He doesn't like it when we come to him to pray about our brother's sin. You know who else does that? Satan, the devil, is the accuser of the brethren, and everything he sees, every evil he can imagine or actually see in us, he takes to the Father and accuses us. And what does the Father say? You're right. I saw it myself. He or she did sin. I am going to nuke them. I'm going to wipe them out. Sure glad you brought this to my attention. I am a God of vengeance and hate, and I am not going to show mercy because they broke my law, and they've had it. Lightning strikes. Is that his reaction? No. He says the accuser of the brethren is going to be cast down. He can't stand to hear about sin. He doesn't want to hear about sin. He wants sin to go away. He does not want us pointing the finger at each other about each other. Or whether we point it by saying something to someone else, he doesn't want us to even think it. Don't have evil imaginations in your mind and heart. It's not talking about saying it even. Don't even let it be there. If you have negative, evil imaginations about anybody, you need to put it out of your mind, ask God to help you put it out of your mind, and exercise it from your mind. Then we can live in peace, but not until we can accomplish this. There is no room for gossip. Satan takes gossip to the Father in heaven about you and me. We have no right to have evil imagination or evil words against each other. I don't know how to emphasize this enough. He said it in chapter 7. 
He says it here again in chapter 8, that those whom he is working with, he wants them to become this way. To think good of each other. Doesn't he tell us? Let's go back and read Philippians 4, verse 8. I quote it often. Some of you say it's your favorite scripture, but you don't pay any attention to it. Verse 5 of chapter 4. Let your moderation be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful or anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So if we go to God about each other, it should be with thanksgiving and our requests for blessing upon our brothers be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God. Now, when we imagine evil and we verbalize evil, we are creating turmoil and confusion and frustration. You don't love your neighbor as yourself, which is the first, second commandment, if you repeat evil about him or think it and say it. You're not loving your brother as yourself. You know good and well you hate to have bad things said about you. Is there anybody here who is such a martyr that they love to hear all kinds of accusations against them and how bad they are? It's okay if you're that way, you can raise your hand. There isn't anyone. We don't like to hear evil. Some of us are so private, we won't tell anything about ourselves for fear somebody will ascribe evil to us. We hate being talked about in a negative way as human beings. But boy, are we quick to do it to somebody else. Don't you dare do that to me. I'll do it to you instead. There's no room for that in the kingdom of God. There's no room for that in the church of God. There's no room for that in any of our minds and hearts. Got to purge it. Got to get rid of it. Now, some people tend to be a little more positive by nature. And we say they're looking through rose-colored glasses. And they don't see reality. And other people can't think good about anybody. They, they're just negative people. They think in a negative manner. Their mind automatically tries to find bad or evil and looks for it. Well, that needs to be repented of. God says to grow and overcome and come to think like Him instead of like carnal, normal human beings. We aren't to be that way. It is a sin to think evil of your brother. Because you're not showing love to your brother, and you're certainly not loving them as yourself. And that is the second commandment after the great one, and that is to think good of God and love Him. Now, most of us draw the line, don't we? 
Most of the time, we look to God with reverence and respect and try to give glory and honor to His name. So, at least on the surface, we show honor to God and don't talk about Him and accuse Him of being a liar or a thief or an adulterer or a Sabbath breaker or whatever we might accuse Him of. We don't do that with God. We don't tend to think that way. Now, sometimes people will question God. There's some examples of that in the Bible. But for the most part, we don't go there. We kind of don't dare. But with mankind, hey, they're just like me. They sweat and stink just like I do. And they're certainly worse than I am. There's no room for that. And he says, if you don't love your brother and forgive your brother, he will not love you and forgive you. You're going into the lake of fire. So that has to be overcome. It is sin. The last six commandments are about loving your neighbor as yourself. And what you don't like done to you, you had better not do to somebody else. Or you're breaking that commandment and stand in jeopardy of judgment as a result of it. This is serious business. God wouldn't repeat it in verse 7 to the church and in verse 8, chapter 8, to the church unless he meant it. So we had better take it seriously and truly love each other as we love ourselves and not think evil. That's Satan's job. It's not your job and mine. And if we allow ourselves to meditate on things that are evil or accuse people of, we are playing right into the hands of Satan and we're going right along with his mentality and his attitude and we are of our father the devil. Sorry. That's just the way it is. That's what the scripture says. So back to verse 17. Love no false oath. Well, wait a minute. I haven't finished in Philippians yet. Let's go on down here. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. So he says in Haggai, in this place, the remnant, when it comes together, he will bring peace. That means that some people will listen to chapter 7 and chapter 8 of Zechariah and quit allowing their minds to imagine evil and will be merciful and compassionate and loving with each other. That has to happen for peace to be here. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, not bad report, not imagination, good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, Think on these things. You can find something good about anybody. Surely. If there be any virtue or any praise, give that. Now, you usually find a fairly willing audience when you start putting somebody down. People want to hear that. Oh, that is that, you know, you think that could be? Oh, I don't think so. Yeah, maybe so. We have a, there's a, a willing audience among carnal human beings to hear evil. So he says, 
Don't listen to that. Listen to good reports. How many times, how many people do you know? Ask yourself. Think back. How many people have you ever known in your life that when somebody brought that person up and started putting them down, how many people do you or have you ever known who would say, wait a minute, that person does this, this, and this. They're a good person. I don't care what you say. They're all right. That would stop gossips in their tracks. How many people have you really known who are that way? I can think of about, this has come to mind, about two. I've lived quite a while. But they always had something good to say about somebody. I remember one person, Blackfoot, Idaho. She was just that way. Anything came up that was negative whatsoever about somebody, she'd say, oh, but. And she'd say something good about them. When I think of another way, always gave people the benefit of the doubt, gave them the opportunity. There need to be all of us that way. All of us need to be that way with each other. Now people will say, they'll pick one word out of this verse, Philippians 4, verse 8. Do you see which one they pick out? Look at that verse. People who want to be negative pick out one word in that verse. They forget the rest of the verse. Look at it. What word? Find it. Which one did they pick out to use to turn it to negativity? Whatsoever things are true. That's the one they jump on. This is true. This isn't a false accusation. This is the truth. And their, atti- their whole attitude shows that they're in an evil attitude even as they say that. Because that is not the context of this verse. The context is, find anything you can good and dwell on that. So when it says, whatsoever things are true, it means reality. Whatsoever things are true, what do we want our mate to be? True to us. Faithful to us. That's the meaning of true here. Someone who is true to God. Someone who is true to His Word. Someone who is doing their best to serve and obey God. That's the context when he says things that are true. We might use the term straight arrow. This person isn't crooked and devious. They're a straight arrow. They're true to God. They're true to God's Word. That's what true means here. It doesn't mean anything I can find about you that's wrong. It's truth. And I'll repeat it. That isn't the attitude of this verse whatsoever. But I have heard dozens and dozens of people pull that one word out of this verse and then speak evil of each other. It's just so wrong. That isn't what this says. So they use that word to justify evil imagination and accusation. And they're dead wrong. And if they continue it, they'll be dead, not just dead wrong. 
God is not going to have that in His kingdom. He's not going to have it in His remnant because there's going to be peace there. It'll not be allowed. We've got to get over it. I haven't finished this chapter yet, have I? But this is important instruction for us. Right now, we are at a critical time when the space to repent is almost done. The action has already started. It's just going to get heavier and heavier over the next weeks and months until this nation does not survive. We got the same kind of Bolsheviks in Washington they've got in Canada and in China and in Russia. And they're going to come down on us. So we were down to verse 17 when I decided to go to Philippians 4. Let's go to 18 then. And the word of the Eternal of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah joy and gladness, and cheerful feasts. Therefore love the truth and peace. Now we've been fasting on those days, because of the siege against the church, because of the destruction of the church Jerusalem, because of the destruction of the temple, the spiritual temple of God, and even the physical plant, were destroyed. And we even mourn the loss of Herbert Armstrong, who I firmly believe was murdered, as Gedaliah was. So those fasts, those four fasts, have to do with you and me and we have gone through those fasts year by year now, asking God to remove the siege and to restore leadership and to bring us back and build the temple. That's what we've been praying and hoping for. And he tells us it's going to happen. So instead of these being fasts anymore, they're going to become feasts of joy. Very soon now, we will not fast on those four days. We will have a feast. It will get turned around. God's promising that here. I want to stick around till I can eat on those days and enjoy it. I've missed potluck now the last two, three weeks. Now, today, I plan on eating and enjoying it. If I gave you a Enough warning to have time to bring anything. Uh, kind of late when we decided, well, let's go ahead with it. Anyway, of the truth and peace. Evil imagination and negative talk and thinking does not create peace. It destroys peace. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, It shall yet come to pass that there shall come people and in the inhabitants of many cities. <coughs> And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the Eternal, and to seek the Eternal of hosts. I will go also. So there's going to come a time when Zechariah 3 is brought forth, and God is going to be doing signs and wonders and doing the healings that uh, Isaiah 35 talk about. And people are going to begin to see this and say, Let's go there. Let's go where God is working. 
to this point, as I said earlier, it isn't obvious. He hasn't done it yet. There's been no place anywhere in the church the kind of signs and wonders he talks about in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah have occurred yet. But it's going to happen soon, and people are going to pick up on it and say, that's where I'm going. Ten percent. That's all. But that's, they will. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of him of the skirt of him that is a Jew, a spiritual Jew, from all the languages, all the nations around the world where the world of our broadcast went, and people were converted. They're going to hear about what Christ is doing and where he's doing it at the true Jerusalem, says it'll be built in its own place in Zechariah 12. Not that Arab city over there, but in its own place where it originally was. They'll take hold of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So this thing that you and I have been going through these last decades is going to change dramatically, and Christ is going to do signs and wonders. The deaf will hear, the blind will see, and the lame will walk. And the church around the world is going to see that, and 10% are going to head there and say, I hear, I see, God is with you, I want to be part of this. That's what's going to happen very soon now. It has to happen very soon because World War III is on the horizon. <coughs> and financial collapse is on the horizon. And we're already seeing the effects of these things happening. <coughs> so the end time is not near. It is here. And it's getting worse day by day. So let us turn to God, love Him with all our hearts, and love our neighbors as ourselves.